Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Thursday, and I'm tempted to begin uh, by, you know, commenting on the six horses of the apocalypse. But I did it yesterday, except that since then, what do we have? We, we have we have floods, we have fires, we have pandemics, we have wars, we have abortion rulings. And so, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's one of those days. And of course, uh, the news seems almost uniformly bad uh, in, in so many ways. If, if you saw the videos from the the subways in New York City, uh, the, 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 the rainstorm there. I mean, it is apocalyptic stuff. And then, of course, you have some of the dystopian stories coming out about uh, what happened and did not happen in Afghanistan, including the number of our translators left behind. Uh, and then, of course, the big story of the day, which is another reminder about how quickly things change. Um, because what's going to dominate the news today, I, I think, is pretty obvious. It's going to be this 5-4 decision uh, on, on abortion rights by the U.S. Supreme Court. So we, uh, we welcome back uh, Washington Post columnist James Homan to the podcast. James, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. Doing, doing fine, all things considering, after that, <laughs> after that windup. And, and it, is a, it is a depressing time, and it just feels like humiliation upon humiliation. It, it 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 does, and and you know, help me sort out what we know and we don't know about this Roe versus Wade decision, because I I think if people are confused by it, um, uh, they're you know they're 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 justified because the, what we're seeing is is really, um, is really unusual. So Roe versus Wade has not been overturned, but the omens are not good. And what's what I think has got people scratching their heads is that it's pretty clear that based on current law and precedent, this Texas law, which bans most abortions after six weeks, is clearly and unambiguously unconstitutional. But by a 5-4 ruling, the court let it go into effect anyway. Uh, Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor wrote in this fiery dissent, the court's order is stunning. Presented with an application to enjoin a flagrantly unconstitutional law, engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights and evade judicial scrutiny, a majority of justices has opted to bury their heads in the sand. So the, the, the court essentially relied on some technicalities, talks about the, the complex, novel, procedural questions uh, to not deal with it. So they haven't overturned it. The body language suggests that they may be edging that way. But we don't know right now. So, James, give me your sense of the state of play, because my guess is that uh, the reaction today is going to be volcanic, from, right. at, least, at least from one side. Yeah, I think it, it will be volcanic. And, and obviously, the abortion rights groups have an interest in sort of acting like this is Roe being overturned, mm -hmm. when, as you note, there will still be briefs and hearings and you know, the, the law just went into effect yesterday. Uh, it is a very significant decision, though, uh, and it is noteworthy that there were four dissents. Also noteworthy that uh, John Roberts mm -hmm. went along with those who who would not have let the law go into effect pending uh, the the a, a judicial process. Uh, and you know, typically courts would be inclined to enjoin something like this because there are potential harms from letting the law go into effect. And and then these these processes take a long time to play out. And so now we have this situation where, you know, women who are 20 weeks pregnant in, in the second largest state in the country are unable to get abortions there. You're already hearing stories about people going to neighboring states 
flying to California, that kind of a thing. So I, I, it's sort of fascinating that John Roberts didn't want to go along with that, but it speaks to the ascendant conservative majority on the court. Uh, obviously, this is the first really big abortion decision that Amy Coney Barrett has been there for, along with uh, the other two Trump justices that the court punted uh, on on another Texas abortion decision. But it's also striking because the the original Roe v. Wade precedent is a Texas case, and right. uh, and so it's it's sort of you know half a century later. Obviously, this continues to be a, a central culture war. A lot of people on both sides feel very strongly about. Uh, I, I was struck yesterday. You, you know, Joe Biden in a tough spot on this issue. He flip flopped on the Hyde Amendment. Uh, during the campaign because he, he the party has moved, the Democratic Party has moved much farther to the left than he was, a devout Catholic. And uh, and so it was, it was sort of striking yesterday for the first time in his presidency, Joe Biden actually used the word abortion. He, hmm. he has, it's been fascinating to watch him kind of twist himself in pretzels, never to use the word abortion. You know, he'll say women's rights or reproductive free or whatever. And and, uh, and and what that reflects is that the White House recognizes this is going to be, uh, you know, a huge issue. You're already seeing in, in the Virginia governor's race uh, where Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin are, are much closer than the polls suggest. Democrats kind of trying hmm. to use this to gin up uh, their base. So this is obviously this has massive legal implications, stare decisis, all of that. Uh, but this also has huge political implications. And, and I, I guess the last observation I'd make is that this is all happening, Charlie. You care <laughs> about this stuff, but, you know, the, the shadow docket, <laughs> it's just yeah, amazing how much how much law is essentially made by the Supreme Court uh, without fully briefed cases, without both sides getting to make arguments. And, and a lot of these, the, the, just the shadow docket has become such a, a hugely significant thing yeah, let's uh, just before not, the let's... Supreme Court. Yeah, let's just stop right there because this is a really important point. And a couple of the the dissenters made this that, that there, there were no arguments, there were no briefs on all of this. This shadow docket is a, involves the emergency orders, right? And it's it, it it is it's never been used this quite this way before. Right. So if people are feeling kind of blindsided, or when was the day in court for all of this? It just didn't happen, and and that was what I think you know had people. Um, puzzled and upset all day yesterday before this 5-4 ruling came down that the, the court allowed this law to go into effect without any explanation whatsoever. There were no opinions. There was nothing. So it, it, it we are are kind of in a strange moment. This this is, again, if, if you're feeling, if you feel this is strange and unprecedented, it's because it is. Right. And a lot of the shadow docket stuff became really out of hand during the Trump era because Donald Trump was doing so much stuff uh, that there were these emergency appeals going to the court and the court was enjoining things and stopping things or freezing or letting things go uh, into effect. And and so it is wild to have what could end up looking like this hugely consequential landmark decision without the, the day in court. Okay, so let, let's let, let's try to. We, neither you or I are lawyers, but we're going to play. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to practice law a little bit, uh, at least legal analysis uh, on on this podcast. One of the really unusual and unprecedented that, by the way, that's uh, Justice Roberts' terms, uh, unusual and unprecedented aspects of this Texas law is that it essentially outsources enforcement 
to sit as private citizens who can sort of become bounty hunters, um, that it allows, if, if you haven't been paying any attention, this law allows pretty much anybody to file a lawsuit against anyone even remotely involved in an abortion except the mother herself. And it creates an incentive for kind of vigilante litigations. It, so it, as, as your paper, the Washington Post notes, Individuals who are sued under the ban could be required to pay the person who brought the lawsuit at least $10,000 for each abortion the defendant was involved in. And Sotomayor writes, in effect, the Texas legislature has deputized the state's citizens as bounty hunters, offering them cash prizes for civilly prosecuting their neighbor's medical procedures. And pro-life activists in Texas are saying it's like a citizen's arrest. You know, you see somebody go through a red light, you call the cops. And Texas Right to Life has begun soliciting anonymous tips on its website, asking for volunteers to uh, join the team of pro-lifers working to enforce the law. And they, they have an online forum asking tipsters to submit information about how the abortion ban may be violated and to name a clinic or a doctor potentially involved. According to some reports, you'd even be able to sue the Uber driver uh, who took a woman to a clinic and I guess, James, this is part of what's so strange about this. This this outsourcing of the enforcement seems to have been the legal loophole slash gimmick that allows the law to go into effect, right? Because the state itself is not enforcing it. That's kind of the excuse for the Supreme Court not acting. Yeah, it is. But it's one of those things where, you know, in, in for pro-life folks, for conservatives, be careful what you wish for. Uh, exactly. Because if this... Mm -hmm. if this kind of principle, if this legal principle is allowed to stand, it's so easy to imagine how the left could use it uh, on religious liberty grounds, you know, guns. on uh, guns, especially. Yeah, California passes a law, anyone who possesses a gun, you know, you get, and and so the, this is this is one of those kind of maybe too clever by half sort of things where uh, it, it might work uh, legally, but it will open up a, a whole raft of unintended consequences. Yeah. And also what could go wrong with a policy that encourages neighbors, family, friends, coworkers, <laughs> and, and complete strangers to spy <laughs> on and sue one another. Really? See, this is, okay, I need it to take a great in East Germany. <laughs> well, see, this is the, this is what, why I think that this looks like to, this morning, like a win for pro-life, uh, the pro-life movement. But I, I think it's going to be a, it's, I think the technical term is catastrophic victory because I don't think you have to be pro-abortion to think that this is a little bit dystopian and I don't think it's going to play well. And I say this as somebody that's been, been pro-life for many, many, many years. And I guess my take on this to explain is that, that I think that ultimately the, the pro-life movement does need to change hearts and minds. And that's, you know, I mean, I, I think that, that this is one where you appeal to people to choose life. You create and you, you, you create a culture of life and respect for life. And you hope that people will choose that. This strikes me as in many ways, almost the worst possible way for the pro-life movement to score a win, because I'm guessing that as as this plays out over the next few days and weeks and, and months, this whole idea of everybody suing one another and spying on one another is really not going to be a political plus for right, Republicans. I, I agree, Charlie. And I think this is one of those things where it ends up leading to backlash. Maybe yeah, it makes Texas huge. It, it makes it, it could lead to backlash inside Texas, make Texas uh, 
a little more purple than uh, faster than it might have otherwise uh, been. And and I, I think you're absolutely right that you're going to see this sort of balkanization of the country where if if this sort of passes muster, you'll see a lot of other states doing this. Uh, and then I think you will just read a lot of horror stories about, you know, creepy guys harassing women and how hard it is to be an OBGYN and OBGYNs moving out of the state and uh, wealthy women in Dallas still able to, you know, fly somewhere to to get an abortion, but poor women not being able to to leave the state. And so it just, it opens up this can of worms where in some ways it's like the dog catching up with the truck. Hey, uh, no, it, it, I, I, catastrophic I, victory is exactly right. I think you're exactly right. Now, I think there's a lot of, there's some, some overblown Handmaid's Tale yes, analogies and I'm going to get, but, but having said that, you don't need to go to Handmaid's Tale to come up with some really plausible uh, scenarios here. So let's say that a woman uh, is pregnant and she has a miscarriage and somebody who doesn't like her or is just a busybody or whatever uh, sees that she is no longer pregnant and um, you know, goes to the anonymous tip line and reports her um, and maybe you know somebody else, her parents or somebody else who might have uh, you know been driving her around, whatever. So files a lawsuit. You can't sue the woman herself, but you can file a, a lawsuit. And the way it's set up, that if you file the lawsuit and you win, you get $10,000. If you are sued under this law, you have to go hire a lawyer. It costs you money. And if you are vindicated, if you win the lawsuit, you get nothing. So, I mean, it really does. I, I know it, the, the the term bounty seems loaded, but in effect, it is. It, it creates this financial incentive for people to drop a dime on people that they, you know, either dislike or maybe don't even know or to make a point. And I guess, look, you've written about this before, how strange it is watching conservative governors who claim to be for small government, you know, now imposing all of these sort of draconian uh, limits on business. I mean, I remember five minutes ago how conservatives were against the litigation culture. They didn't want to have a lawsuit culture. <laughs> remember that this was one of the big issues was tort reform so that we didn't have private individuals constantly threatened with expensive lawsuits. And this opens a Pandora's box of potential sue your neighbor type litigation. It does. And, and countersuits and her, it, it, it's just, yeah, it is one of those things where that, that's a, a really good point. This is another example of sort of, this is a uh, post Trump conservatism, I guess you could call it. I, I, I hate to use the word conservatism to describe something no, like this that, that uses this legal mechanism because it just is so at odds with everything I grew up being taught that, that yeah. conservative men and represented. Yeah, well, they're, 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 they're no longer pro-small government. Uh, they're pro-regulation. They're pro-mandate. Uh, they don't really seem to care about local control. And now it's like, hey, let's, uh, let's, have, let's have a lot of litigation. You wrote, you wrote about this with Ron DeSantis. I was going to get to this a little bit later. Mm -hmm. but um, and, and this is a perfect example where you have the governor, uh, a conservative, uh, well, a, a Republican governor telling mm -hmm. private businesses what they can't, what they can't do. And there has developed a somewhat interesting debate between Ron DeSantis and Christy Nome, who's also very MAGA, who's also very uh, skeptical of some of the you know social distancing, public health uh, initiatives. But they are taking a different tact on this, aren't they? And they, they and it is fascinating to watch uh, because it it really does get it an important distinction. And there are these real debates about what is it 
mean to believe in uh, individual liberty? And does individual liberty mean that uh, a private hospital, in the case of South Dakota, can mandate that its employees need to get vaccinated? And Christy Nome in South Dakota, uh, who, as you note, has, has kind of resisted a lot of other efforts and has never had a mask mandate in her state, uh, you know, th- she said this private hospital should have the right to require its employees to wear a mask when they're working for them inside their building. And Ron DeSantis has banned uh, banned such mandates. Uh, or, or, I, I, mandate might not be the right word, but yeah. requirements, rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the big one that I think is the most sort of egregious in the case of DeSantis is barring cruise ships from requiring yeah. passengers to show proof of vaccination or asking them if they've been vaccinated. And that one is just such a, a no, it's a private business. No one has to take a cruise if they don't want to. You can have multiple, there are multiple cruise lines, some requiring passengers to be vaccinated, others not. Uh, you know, you're, the business is doing it uh, out of self-interest uh, and it's a, it's a private company on private property on, you know, the, the, it, it just it's one of those things where what is the conservative rationale for telling a cruise line no you can't ask people if they're vaccinated it, no, and a, that, that's where Ron DeSantis is and that's how you kind of warp these ideas and all of a sudden you know you're trying to impress well, but, but, Fox Fox and friends and you get you get to these weird places <laughs> you get to many weird places very very quickly <laughs> well sometimes you know the fight becomes the fight and it's just all all about uh, you know signaling your your tribal loyalties. Okay, so the, the great thing about a podcast is I can I can sort of circle back on something. We were you know I I wanted to get into one more aspect on this whole abortion issue, and I, I think we kind of touched on it. You know what we don't know is how this plays in the midterms. But uh, you correct me if I'm wrong because I was looking for you know reaction to all of this. And I'm not seeing many Republican politicians or pro-lifers celebrating this as a win. And your point about, you know, being the dog that catches the car, um, I, I actually think that this has a potential to really backfire and that, that I think that you're going to start to see over the next week a lot of Republicans perhaps running away from this. But it'll be very interesting to see where they go, because I do think this whole sue your neighbor, spy on your neighbor thing is as politically toxic as you can get. And even though they, they you know, might obviously want to align with the pro-lifers, I think how quickly momentum in, our, in politics changes these days, how, you know, y- yesterday I would have bet some pretty strong money that the Democrats are going to get wiped out in the midterm elections. And I think they probably still will be. I know, but, you know, save, <laughs> I, I agree. Save, save, save your emails on all of this. But this is not the issue that Republicans, I think, wanted to put on the table right, right. now. I mean, right. this, is, it, this is not what they want to be talking about today when they had so many other things that I think were probably they had an advantage on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Now the topic has changed and this could be deadly. Yeah. You think about a state like New Hampshire uh, yeah. where Chris Sununu is a very popular Republican governor, uh, and he is almost certain to run against Maggie Hassan. And mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing where this lets sort of moderate Democrats off the mat a little bit because, uh, you know, we, in a lot of states, obviously we know the national polling for abortion, but a lot of states, 
the majority of people are pro-life. But in a state like New Hampshire, it's sort of that flinty, more libertarian New England culture. And uh, and this is just this is a very tricky place uh, for a Republican to be in. But it also lets a Democrat say, look, this isn't about abortion. This is about neighbors suing neighbors. And this is about harassment and and what and it lets them sort of get off the mat uh on on some of these tricky issues related to like the Hyde Amendment and those kinds of things. Uh and so that I think is is one of the reasons it's potentially problematic. The other is that, you know, Joe Biden I, I was watching a focus group uh that a, a Democratic group was organizing recently and and uh and it was sort of striking to see just as an observer uh how many people are, are disliked Trump, voted for Biden, but have been really uneasy by Biden's handling of Afghanistan. And there's doubts about his competence and his energy and, and all these kinds of things. And this helps Democrats potentially galvanize younger voters and single women and those kinds of groups that that may not necessarily vote in the midterms or even in the presidential race if Trump's not on the ballot. But it kind of gives them a reason to get reengaged. So let's talk about Afghanistan and the fallout from Afghanistan and a really fascinating column you have about a lieutenant colonel who was uh, stripped of his stripped of his command. Is that correct? I mean, That's he was right. Stripped of his, his position uh, after he uh, denounced some of what was going on in Afghanistan, because it really raises some very interesting issues. So I want to get to that right after this. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we are back with James Homan of the Washington Post. Uh, you know, before we get into the sort of the big picture of what's happening in Afghanistan, you had a really interesting piece, I thought, um, about a Marine Lieutenant Colonel named Stuart Scheller, who um, became kind of a YouTube star for denouncing uh, the the, the the Biden policy on Afghanistan. Talk to me about that a little bit. Who, yeah, so, who, who is who is Colonel Scheller? He is the, a battalion commander, or was a battalion commander at uh, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, uh, in an infantry training battalion. And he's someone who's been in the the Marines for seventeen years, like a lot of us, a, a very emotional as uh, as he watched the fall of Kabul. He, you know, knew uh, a lot of people who had had died over there, uh, and and so he kind of lashed out uh, last Thursday night and recorded this video to Facebook, where he attacked by name the commandant of the Marine Corps, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and uh, and and said, how dare you execute this order from Joe Biden and you should have thrown your stars on the table and refused to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I actually saw the video soon after it went up and my initial reaction was, you know, this is, it's, it's sad. This is a, a, a Marine who just is feeling the weight of two decades of war, but then he has doubled down <laughs> and, uh, in every day now for a week has, has gone farther 
And what's chilling about it is that there are a lot of people who are sort of trying to make him into the sort of a martyr or a cause celeb for this new idea that, you know, it was somehow the, you know, it was Joe Biden that lost this war, not 20 years of, of bad decisions and, and all of that. And so Tucker Carlson opened his show with a monologue about this guy. Donald Trump has been sending a press release about it. Uh, Dan Crenshaw, the congressman from Texas, saying this guy's a class act and basically condoning him. And so as all these people are praising him, he keeps kind of getting more and more unhinged and talking about how, you know, the civilians only have power in our system because we let them Ooh. and we oh, need oh. to bring, you know, we need to bring down the system. So all of a sudden it kind of quickly is veering into this uh, chilling idea that like the military shouldn't be accountable to civilian leadership. And, and, uh, and these videos are getting you know, more than a million views in a lot of cases on YouTube. And so it is a, an alarming window and there's a lot of, a lot of the comments on them are people who were identifying, who knows if they're Russian bots or something else, but they're people who were identifying as military saying, you know, hoorah, you're right. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And it just kind of, it, it's chilling because a free Republic depends on this idea. And this is what I wrote about in my column yeah. that a, a president has the right to be wrong. And as long as he's issuing lawful orders, the troops obey those orders. And so I personally think Biden was wrong in Afghanistan and I also respect his right to pull out of Afghanistan, just as I respected Trump's right to do so. And and so that's this this weird dynamic where, you know, obviously it, it doesn't take a lot of uh it, it doesn't take a lot of creativity to imagine how this kind of plays out where you have no. this is not a junior guy, this is a lieutenant colonel. No. Uh, saying we don't have to follow civilian rule. And, and you think about it in, in the backdrop of January 6th and Trump, and and it, it becomes you know, very scary very quickly. See, I want to make it clear, as, as you do in your column, this is not just a matter of, you know, free speech and criticizing. You know, this guy, Scheller, went, I'm going to read from your column. Scheller went further, seemed to call on men and women in uniform to rise up and resist civilian control. Follow me and we will bring the whole effing system down, he said in a follow-up video. They only have the power because we allow it. And he talks about, you know, nobody knows what I'm capable of. And, and you know, this is alarming, particularly because it is now being embraced. You know, it, it is being embraced by, by many of the folks who have been shall we say, uh, authoritarian uh, adjacent or curious, uh, right. people who have talked about the, the possibility of become, you know, more enamored of the idea of, uh, of violence. And I guess one of the disturbing parts about all this is you, I was watching that video where he's talking about, follow me, we'll bring the old effing system down. You don't know what I'm capable of. And I'm thinking this guy somehow became a lieutenant colonel, <laughs> which in my, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I, I guess I'd been under the assumption that in the, in the, in the, in the military and the Marines that, you know, you have a vetting process and you'd have to have, you know, sort of psychological, you kind of would hope that they were more reasonable and rational. I mean, yeah. And there's but, a lot of heroes. I mean, I should say, I, you know, a lot of my best friends are in the Marine Corps yeah. and are officers and they're stand-up guys. And, you know, I, you do want to make sure, I think one of the reasons in, you know, that they, the Marine Corps, for lack of a better term, needs to make an example of this guy is because it, you don't want to send the message to younger officers who maybe are authoritarian curious and, uh, you know, enlisted men who are watching this and that it, that this is okay. I mean, this is even Scheller himself in a Facebook post that he put up yesterday said, I have 
clearly violated two or three uh, parts of the U.S. Code of Military Justice and acknowledged that if he gets court-martialed, he'll go to jail uh, because he he knows what he's doing is 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 not just against the code that they're supposed to be trained to believe in, but also is just against the law, against the code of right. military justice, which is all about the chain of command. And so for good order and discipline in the military, it's really important that that other people not get the idea that this kind of behavior is okay. Well, see that, and that's the point. And you do make this point that maybe he's not the problem. It's the people who are celebrating him that are the problem. You know, if the Fox News folks celebrate him, if, you know, if, uh, if MAGA World celebrates him, if Dan Crenshaw says he's an American hero, then basically what it does signal is that this is not only acceptable, it's something to be applauded. It's part of this you know, retconning of, of January 6th, where people who were involved in an insurrection become martyrs and patriots and people who, um, you know, stand up and commit, you know, court martialable offenses, if that's a word, um, against civilian control suddenly are called heroes. I mean, th- this is this is the danger. It's not just him. It's, it's what is normalized, what is celebrated, and what is considered to be acceptable. And, and the worst thing that could happen, Charlie, for civil military relations is for this guy to just yep. get discharged and then get a Fox News contract where he's on, you know, yeah. prime time saying we, and, and that's just, that will just send the worst possible message to the troops. And, and it does kind of change the norm. And this is, you know, I, I, over the last 20 years, it, it's not just this one guy in North Carolina and it's not necessarily authoritarian, but a lot of, a lot of times over the last 20 years, the military sort of emerged and you hear this from guys on the inside as almost their own interest group. And the military is, exists to protect the, a free society. The problem is to protect the free society, the military has to be strong enough to also imperil the free society. That's sort of, you know, the, the going back to Sun Tzu and Clausewitz. Yeah. And that's why the founding fathers didn't want large standing armies uh, and and that's why the U.S. didn't have a large standing army until World War II. And then afterwards, to stare down the Soviet menace, we had to build up appropriately a, a large army. And that's why in 1947, we passed the National Security Act, which required that uh, we have civilian secretaries of defense, unless there's a waiver, which we've now had twice recently. It, it's what created the National Security Council. And it basically codified civilian control of the military because – if you read the Federalist Papers, there's kind of two references to it. Madison talked about this during the uh, Constitutional Convention. It's just very important to protect the republic that uh, people who are accountable to voters be the ones who are making decisions of war and peace. You know, it strikes me as we're talking about this that so everything is in play right now um, because especially among in, in the in the right media – they're beating on the military, um, the, the 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 generals, the 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 contempt for the the defeat and uh, the contempt for their their behavior during the defeat and and the retreat in Afghanistan is palpable. That the that the leadership of the military are all woke, uh, that they are politically correct. At the same time, there's kind of the valorization of these rogue uh, soldiers who are you know challenging civilian control. I mean that that's one of those moments that does have a certain amount of historical resonance, doesn't it? But it, it is interesting watching 
um, watching the, you know, many of the conservatives who had been, you know, willing to wrap themselves in the flag and, you know, be as pro-military now are very anti-military except for some of these dissenters. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, I it's, absolutely it, do. It's, it's, it's very, it's very unsettled right now. It's very unclear how it's all going to shake out. And I think it's good. I absolutely agree. And I've been thinking about this a lot the last couple of days. And uh, it's a good thing that we celebrate our troops. I'm obviously mm-hmm. the Afghanistan war became unpopular, uh, but I'm so glad that the unlike the end of Vietnam, where the vets were coming back and getting booed and jeered, despite courageously serving our country, uh, because the war had turned unpopular. People aren't blaming the troops. And, and it's true. I don't, no, they're we not. Didn't, we didn't lose this war because of the boots on the ground. You know, our, our military wasn't, it, it, the, the, the troops did what they were asked to do. But you're right that there are a lot of historical analogies for where it becomes very problematic when this narrative takes hold that, it, you know, it was the, the suits and the politicians that lost the war uh, and, and, you know, the military did its, its part. And, and so, you know, the military isn't beyond question, uh, especially a lot of the brass, uh, in, in this new book by my colleague Craig Whitlock about the, the Afghanistan papers is really good. Yeah. Getting into like a lot of the stuff that happened over the last 20 years. But, but I do think it's just, it's, it's vital that we have this sort of civic recognition about the importance of free speech, about civilian control of the military, about all these different values that you and I took for granted until the last five or six years. And that all of a sudden it's, it's not just polls and and focus groups, but anecdotally, it feels like a lot of people don't kind of recognize why these things are essential. And I should say that, you know, I, during the, the Trump era, it was easy to applaud uh, the former generals who were speaking out against yeah. Trump, and and that was that felt good. Uh, but I I remember feeling really uncomfortable in 2016, not just when Michael Flynn was at the Republican convention, leading chance of lock her up as a, a someone who had been a general until a year before, but also even at the Democratic convention where they were trotting all these people out, not because of what they had to say, but because they were former generals, and that's not what America should be about. So I feel like I would love for there to be some kind of recalibration to have people in the military sort of be more cognizant of the proper role in in kind of the relationship between civilians and the military, but also for civilians to think about that as well. And it, it's so easy when a general is going to agree with you and validate you. Of course, you're going to put him in a campaign commercial or put him up at a rally, but that quickly you can see how it becomes a, a problem. Yeah, this uh, this blurring of the lines between people, you know, the, the the generals and civilian control, which has happened now under both the administrations, is probably um, worth revisiting. Y- you know, you mentioned Craig Whitlock's uh, new book about the Afghan pay- Afghanistan papers, and I was listening to him on, uh, I think it was on one of the cable shows yesterday, and. and it was one of those moments where you realize, you know, there's the, all of this distrust and skepticism of institutions in our society, and you can understand where it comes from because what he's recounting is decades of disinformation, not coming from the internet, but coming from the generals. And the way he describes how the intelligence agencies knew that things were not going well, but the generals would uh, troop up in front of the cameras or in front of Congress and engage in all sorts of happy talk. And for for me, it's kind of flashbacks to the, the Vietnam era where we find out at the end 
that uh, that the military, uh, the the generals, the the, the president had been uh, misleading us about what was going had been lying to the American public. Not and, just one, and, but multiple. Yeah, multiple, multiple. And so you look back on Afghanistan, and you know, just stepping back from the the, the fiasco of, of of the retreat, it's twenty years of miscalculations, of stupidity, of. Um, misleading uh, Congress and the American public, and there's got to be a, there's going to be a reckoning for that, and and the, the fallout from that is going to last for a long time. Absolutely, and, and I, I think we're going to have hearings uh, about the fall of Kabul and the evacuation and all of that, and I and I and we should, but I hope that the focus on the final two weeks doesn't obscure from learning some lesson from the past 20 years. Right. Because there is there are lessons to be learned so that we don't repeat these mistakes. And and to your point about kind of I think some of it was wishful thinking. I think that there was this sort of desire and and I'm not defending the people who lied to Congress or the media or the American people, but there was just this feeling that kind of if we just will it into being then things will get better and and I was struck I don't know if you saw that Reuters story this week about uh they they actually listen to audio. They didn't publish the audio, but they, they got the transcript and a, a reporter actually heard oh, yeah. the, the call between President Biden and Ashraf Ghani. And one of the things that was most cringeworthy about that was Biden telling Ghani just before the fall of Kabul, and I'm quoting, there's a need, whether it is true or not, there is a need to project a different picture and trying to kind of convince Ghani to act like things were better than they were uh, and put the best face they could, even as the Taliban kept making progress. And the reason I mentioned that, Charlie, is because it, I, I think that that is an illustration of how these politicians in both parties have not learned the right lessons from Vietnam or Afghanistan. And when you don't learn the right lessons, it means that we're doomed to repeat these same tragic mistakes that that lead to dead Americans, that lead to these these kind of quagmires and then ultimately that lead to squandered trust from the american people and i think that's why this 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 hurts biden especially because you know he had this image or at least he was uh, he was trying to portray himself as the as the straight talker somebody who was going to level with the american people he would engage in very blunt uh, discussions of uh, the, the challenge, you know, that we face with with the pandemic and everything, and so then to find out that he is invested in this happy talk and continues to engage in it with his sort of you know de- defiant defense. You know, the other day I also mentioned, speaking of misinformation, um, that we are in the fog of defeat, the fog of re- retreat, that we don't know a lot of what's been going on. A lot of the things that we hear about, and you, you've, you've been around journalism a lot to know that, you know, at, at, at moments like this, there are all sorts of reports that come out that later turn out not necessarily be true. Um, you know, and not necessarily because people are, are lying, but because there's just so much confusion. And so, you know, we, we now get this story that um, this is the NBC News story. Senior State Department officials now admitting that it appears a majority of Afghans who worked for the U.S. military and applied for the special immigration status uh, visas had not been successfully evacuated and remain and 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 do remain in Afghanistan. So, based on anecdotal information, a majority of these people were left behind, which was not the narrative that we were being fed over the last week. And that's and again one of those oof moments where um, you know, despite all of the talk about the numbers and the Dunkirk and and everything, that we left most of them behind. 
We did. And and it was frustrating because we in the media were trying for days and days to press for a more specific count. And Tony Blinken kept saying the top line number, but that was including people from other countries that we were getting out to. And we anecdotally were getting all these reports of people who were getting to the airport and not getting through. Uh, I, I interviewed this young woman who uh, who got here just by total happenstance. She got a Fulbright scholarship to study at the University of Nebraska. Wow. Uh, uh, this Afghan girl, very impressive, <laughs> very bright. And, uh, and she just had, for months had a flight scheduled to leave Kabul on that Friday before it fell on Sunday. And so she left and got to Nebraska. She's here all alone. And her sister and parents uh, are still there. And and so th- this isn't quite what we were just talking about, but they don't have any kind of claim. They don't have special immigrant visas. They didn't apply for them. The U.S. doesn't, you know, they bought into the U.S. project and these mm-hmm. the father kind of let his daughters study music and all these different things. But, you know, this young woman is now here and these three family members are left behind. And we sort of did see the administration basically say like, yeah, it's terrible, but we don't have any responsibility to these people uh, who didn't have kind of the special immigrant visa. So those people aren't even in the conversation, (laughs) you know, and and they're stuck and it's, it's just this terrible thing. And then what will will happen to them? They're going to, you know? I, I don't, and and she doesn't. And so she's in Nebraska and ideally will, you know, the American government will let her stay in the U.S. and and not send her back. And I assume that will happen. But, you know, it is just this terrible, traumatic, horrible thing. And when will she see her family again? And that's just one, you know, there's almost 40 million people in Afghanistan, almost 20 million girls and women. And so that's kind of the, just the mind blowing part of this. And uh, we had this really powerful op-ed from, uh, in today's newspaper, uh, the the this woman was running like essentially an all girls boarding school in Kabul, and she uh, was able to get a lot of her students out, but not through the American government. But she ended up she's brought all of her students to Rwanda, so she's now in Kigali. Oh, God. oh, and like so, she, <laughs> but she's like, oh, it's pretty good. It's much better here than in Afghanistan, and so she has, you know, like a, a more than a hundred young girls that you know, and she's she's right now referring to it as a study abroad program <laughs> for the year, you know. But they're, you know, they they it is thank God they were able to get out, uh, and but not because of the American government, <laughs> and uh, and and so you know she she tells the story in the op-ed about how. She knows all these young women who were former students and how they have these scythes and uh, that they, they're they so concerned about being uh, basically forced by the Taliban into, into marriages, forced marriages, that the Taliban will come through and marry these young women to their fighters, that uh, these young women have scythes to stab themselves. Uh, so that they don't have to be forced oh, no. into these barbaric things. And it's just, you know, it's it's just, we started the hour by talking about how there's no good news. And you read that and it just, your heart breaks. And, and it is, you think about all the people that are left behind. And then above and beyond that, the people who the U.S. really did have a very explicit moral obligation to help and, and did not. See, this is one of those areas where... And I'm trying. I'm trying to work work this out because, because I I understand the argument that that Joe Biden is making that we can't be responsible for you know 
all of the human rights violations anywhere in the world, right? We uh, we don't invade every country where women are, are denied their their rights. Um, we we can't be the we we you know we can't be the policemen of the world. We we can't be the social workers of the world. However, there's one thing to have an abstract principle of of our about our responsibility versus the tangible reality. So here's an analogy, you know that you could say, I can't, I don't have a moral obligation to feed every single human being on earth. But if I have somebody who's in my house, who's starving, I do. And we have the practical reality of real people with tangible problems who have relied on us, whose lives we have affected. And we do have a moral obligation to those people. It's not an, it isn't the abstract um, principle that we ought to live up to our obligations. But I mean, I, I do get that the argument. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of the argument that, well, you know, we can't be responsible for X, Y, and Z. And my response is, okay, it's not X, Y, and Z. It's these people. It's this particular woman in Nebraska. It is the girls in this school, um, which exists because we were there. And I do think that this is a real test. I think for for Joe Biden, who who really I I, I think was regarded as as bringing competence and compassion and empathy back into the White House. And I think that this whole fiasco challenges both of those. And I, I wish he would do a better job with the compassion and empathy side because I thought that was one of his his superpowers. It It's supposed to be. And I agree with everything you just said entirely. And it is disconcerting. I went back that first week Afghanistan fell and watched a bunch of videos and looked at a bunch of clips in LexisNexis of Biden right after we went into Afghanistan talking about uh, the how we needed to help these women and girls and build schools. And he actually was, as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, saying we need nation building and we have this obligation. And, uh, and, and so it's just so jarring to watch those clips. And then 20 years later, him say that was never the mission. It was never about the American project. It was always just about getting bin Laden. We got bin Laden 10 years ago. And I think he thinks he's being tough and not getting rolled by the generals and showing intestinal fortitude. But it, but in practice, it just comes across as incredibly callous uh, to, I think he wants to take this victory lap and wants to get credit for ending the endless war. But it it, it does just rub me and I know lots of other people the wrong way. No, I, I agree. James Holman, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, James's work can be found in the Washington Post. And you do a, a podcast as well now, right? I do. It's called Please Go On. This week's uh, guest is John Grisham. Oh, really? What are you going to talk <laughs> about with him? <laughs> he actually is really into uh, wrongful convictions. And so he wrote this uh, he wrote this op-ed for us this week about these three guys in Virginia who were wrongfully convicted. And he basically is like, here are five things that the state of Virginia should do to prevent cases like this from happening again in the future. So it's it's not about his books or anything, but it, it is an interesting conversation about, you know, like, how do we stop people who didn't commit crimes from going to jail? Wow. Okay. I, I am definitely going to listen <laughs> in on that. So, James, again, uh, thank, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.